I don't know about you, um, I, I felt a little bit sad in the week when I heard about the, uh, the passing away of Captain Tom. Um, I, you know, I didn't know him, of, of course, but, but it, it, it kind of felt, didn't it, like he was a bit of a, um, a steadying influence on the nation through the, the pandemic. Did you get that kind of sense? He, he was a man... Um, uh, towards the end of his life, um, who, who in the middle of all this COVID chaos um, could be found sort of, in a very British sense, keeping calm and carrying on, um, sort of patiently doing laps of his garden, uh, raising millions of pounds for charity, and, and giving us little messages to keep the nation going that they were kind of final farewell words if you like of a man that in the in the twilight of his life um and and so no wonder that on his passing those who were were left behind in the pandemic have been googling them to remind themselves of what he said so apparently by far the biggest search requests um for captain tom have been for his quotes his his little messages um Things like this back in April when he said, my message to the nation right now is that tomorrow will be a good day. We will get through this and come out of it stronger, more united and ready to face any challenge together. Um, or his, his little message on completing the, the 100th lap of his garden. For all those who are finding it difficult at the moment, the sun will shine on you again and the clouds will go away. And, and, you know, since he, he passed away, it's those little messages of his that people are wanting to hold on to and remember. And, and it made me wonder, you know, what, what kind of things I might want to communicate to others in the twilight of my years. You know, if, if my life were coming to its end, what, what would I want to say? What would my final farewell messages be? Uh, well, I, I, th- I think what we've got here in, in the letter of 2 Peter is, is kind of his final farewell message um we're going to see next time in verse 14 you can see it now if you flick ahead that actually peter expects to be martyred quite soon and and so this second letter of his he he doesn't expect to be followed by a third um so what does he want to say to his readers i think his overriding purpose in writing this final message of his is that they grow in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus as they look forward to the day when they will meet him. That's what he wants. He wants them to have a a grown-up faith, a, a faith that will sustain them for mission under pressure in a world where the apostles won't be around anymore. So uh, what kind of pressure are these Christians under? Um, You'll remember that we finished a few weeks ago uh, a series in 1 Peter, um, looking at what I called uh, life on mission in the new normal. Uh, And what we saw then, when when the first letter was written, um, was the pressure that the churches were under then was an external pressure, wasn't it? It was a a cultural pressure that came from them being a a marginalized minority of uh, what he termed elect exiles, people experiencing opposition from the society that was around them as they sought to to live and speak for Christ. In other words, they were living a a kind of pre-Christian version of the 
post-Christian situation that we find ourselves in today. But actually now, here in the second letter, the pressure that they are under, uh, the new normal, if you like, that they're having to get used to here, is a different one. And it's not so much the external pressure from the culture around them, but it's the internal pressure of, of false teaching from within the church's own ranks. And friends, that's got to sound familiar to us too, hasn't it? Um, Because the the, the church today is not only facing the external pressure of marginalisation and opposition, is it? But it's also facing the internal pressure of false teaching leading to false practice within its own ranks. And I'm sure like, you, know, you, like me, have, have read and probably been equally dismayed by the, you know, the articles, the reports that, that come out over the years. You often see them around Easter time, don't know whether you've noticed that, when yet another church leader uh, says that he doesn't really believe that you know, God physically rose Jesus from the, the dead. You know, it was more of a symbolic thing, really, than, than a literal thing. Um, And we get dismayed, of course, don't we? Um, But of course, it doesn't really come as a shock to us anymore, does it? Because we're hearing it too regularly. Oh, you know, there's another church leader, you know, doesn't believe in the resurrection anymore. Um, But actually, it doesn't stop there, does it? Because if we're not going to preach Christ's physical bodily resurrection, well, we're hardly in a position to preach his physical bodily return either, are we? which means that final judgment gets rejected as well. And and so God's love is preached, sure enough, but in ways that ignore the Bible's teaching about sin and about judgment. And, And friends, it doesn't even stop there, does it? Because when your gospel includes no literal resurrection of Christ, no literal return of Christ, no literal judgment by Christ, well, then you end up with a gospel that doesn't feel a need to accept the moral boundaries of Christ either. And of course, that's the situation that we find ourselves in, isn't it? In the Western church today. And it's also the context, I think, that this letter of 2 Peter is written into as well. There's a pattern going on in this letter where no return of Christ means no judgment of Christ, means no boundaries for how we need to live and behave. And, and into that context that that context of internal pressure on the church from the the false teaching which which causes faithful christians to easily despair this letter i think brings brilliant reassurance and much needed confidence in god's word so there's there's kind of no getting around it there is negative stuff in in this letter he he gives lots of warnings uh, about these false teachers their their sinful practices the danger that they represent to God's people and I don't know about you I I don't really like focusing on the negative too much I'd much rather focus on the positive but actually sometimes the negative is needed isn't it um if we're parents, we know this, don't we? That for our children to, uh, to grow up into healthy, happy um, adults, it, it requires us not only to encourage them in what they must do, but also warn them about what they need to avoid. Um, and it's the same with Peter here. His, his final letter warns the Christian friends that he loves. And, and his warnings for them, I, I think, have particular relevance for us today because they're warnings about what is true and what is false, which is important, isn't it? 
Um, you, you know, you, you probably don't need to have been a Christian for very long to discover that there is a, uh, there's kind of a bewildering array of often contradictory teaching a, a, around that all goes under the banner of Christian. And, and in today's culture, of course, we, we're often encouraged to just to accept all of it. You know, Steve, they're just kind of uh, different colours on the same spectrum, is, is, is a comment that was made to me a little while ago. Or, or you know, it's just like different flavours of ice cream, Steve. You know. And what we don't see very much of in, in today's Christian culture is a concern for truth. But we will see that here in, in 2 Peter. Because it's out of a loving concern for truth that Peter writes the letter. Because truth and falsehood, they exist, even within the church. And those who teach falsehood are a danger to God's people, to Peter's friends. And, and so he warns them about these things. So there is some negative stuff in this letter. There's some warning. But actually there's plenty of positive encouragement as well in, in the kind of fabulous biblical themes that, that Peter opens up here. The, the awesomeness of a sovereign God, the, the complete trustworthiness of his scriptures, the, the joy of growing in the knowledge of God and, and how that leads us to godly living and, and then the promised return of the Lord in, in all of his majesty and splendor. So there's, there's loads here to encourage us as well as to warn us as we face not just the external pressures of being marginalized that we saw in 1 Peter, but also the internal pressures of false teaching, which I, I think are harder to spot and, and yet often capable of far greater damage to Christ's church. And, and Peter writes all of this with, with his pastor's heart because he longs to see his Christian brothers and sisters established in their faith and living godly Lives. In other words, he wants them to grow. That's, that's the heartbeat of, of this letter. Because Peter knows that it's a grown-up faith that will enable these Christians to survive and thrive as a church under pressure when he is no longer around. So let's, let's try and get into this letter, shall we? And we'll start by looking at the, the introduction that he gives to it in verses 1 and 2. Have a look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, Simeon, or Simon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who ob- have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So you'll notice there in verse 1 that he kind of he confirms his role as a servant or a slave of Christ in verse 1, but also as an apostle, so as, as one of those chosen by Christ himself to be his uh, representative. So, so to be one of Christ's apostles was to be someone entrusted by the risen Christ to speak God's truth, his, his revelation, and to carry God's authority. In other words, Peter, as an apostle of Christ, has the right to tell these people what to believe and how to live. And by extension, of course, he has the right to tell us what to believe and how to live. Uh, because it's 
It's God's words that he's speaking here and it's God's authority that he's speaking with such that we take this as being from God himself. This was the the unique apostolic authority which was given to those uh, select few people by Christ himself. So he introduces himself as a genuine apostle and he's writing to them as genuine Christians. Verse 1, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Verse 1, in other words, just because Peter is an apostle and those he's writing to are not, and indeed we are not, doesn't mean that our faith is in any way deficient or inferior to his. Indeed it isn't. Our faith is of equal standing with theirs. And that's because, whether it's Peter's faith or our faith, it comes, verse 1, by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In, In other words, Peter's faith, just like our faith, comes as a gift from God on the basis of what Christ alone has done. So there's no first class and second class Christians as far as Peter's concerned. So, having introduced himself, then look, verse 2, he he gives um, what is really a customary blessing. You can see this at the beginning of many New Testament letters. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's kind of standard Christian greeting. But it's worth mentioning because it's a a little acknowledgement of what the writer and the readers share together, isn't it? Namely, the grace and peace that comes through their, their common bond in Jesus Christ. But then notice that he tells us how that grace and peace is appropriated, how we get it. End of verse 2. It's in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And, and he's hinting here the big theme of this letter. It's about knowing God. It's about the knowledge of God, which, um, which might put us off a bit. You know, I I guess for many of us, we're not sort of academic types. Uh, We we tend to associate knowledge maybe with kind of, I don't know, dry and dusty books or school classrooms or, you know, other things we'd rather forget. Um, but, But that's not how the biblical writers use the word knowledge in in the bible knowledge has got very uh, very personal very intimate uh, associations with it I, I guess the <laughs> i guess the classic example of this is in the old king james bible if you remember that um uh where where uh, the book of in the book of genesis records um that that adam knew his wife eve and she conceived a child. <laughs> I, I don't suppose that kind of knowing involved many books, did it? Um, in, in other words, to know someone me, means to have a, a, an intimate knowledge of them, to, to be in some form of relationship with them. So, so when Peter says that, that grace and peace come through the knowledge of God, he, he means through a close relationship with God but a relationship that's based on a correct understanding, a truthful understanding of who he is. Did you see? And, you know, I reckon that's helpful for us to reflect on um, because I, I, guess, I, I guess it's probably from around about the, the mid-1960s uh, onwards, um, people within the church started to warn others with, within the church about the, the dangers of having a, um, like a dry head knowledge about God, you know, a knowledge that never really touched the heart. 
And I, I think that was a pretty fair warning, really, um, that maybe some parts of the church still need to hear. But actually, it seems to me that since that point, uh, these days, we, we kind of face the equal danger as well of, of having a sort of warm and fuzzy kind of emotionally driven view of God, which never really engages the head. Such that many Christians today, it seems to me, in comparison with with Christians of of previous generations, know comparatively little about their faith. It means they can't explain it often very well to those who may ask them about it. And, And a big concern of Peter's in this letter that he's just kind of alluding to here is that the people of God have a proper knowledge of God. One based on truth about him and not falsehood. I reckon that's pretty relevant for today's church as well. So there's a bit of an introduction uh, to the letter, those two verses, and, and the key theme of the letter, which I think is, is the knowledge of God. He wants them to have a grown-up faith, a, a faith that's based firmly on a true knowledge of, of who God is. And you can see that he kind of gets then straight to work on, on that theme in the remainder of the passage, verses 3 to 11 where I think he wants to encourage us to make the effort to grow in the knowledge of God. And and you'll notice first, look, in verses 3 and 4, that his his concentration here is is firstly on what Christ has done. So so here's Christ's provision for us. Have have a look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And the his here, I think, is specifically Christ's divine power. In other words, just see what Jesus has done. His divine power, the, the, the power by which he called us into a relationship with himself, is the same power by which he supplies everything that we need to live godly lives. Friends, have you noticed um, how easily we can fall into the trap of focusing on what we don't have but think that we need? So uh, I I think this changes uh, in in how we we do this as, as we get older. When we're younger, of course, it's often based around stuff, isn't it? Or experiences that we don't have but think that we need. I really need that new phone or, you know, these new shoes or that car or this next thing on my bucket list or or whatever it might be. And then as we get older, uh, uh, we seem to get more focused not on the stuff that we don't have but maybe on the health that we don't have. Um, or or on the fitness that we don't have, or or maybe, as we get even older, on the friends and the family that we don't have, because they're not with us anymore, and we wish that they were. So so there's a kind of a trap at any stage of life for us, isn't there, to be preoccupied by what we don't have, but want to have. But, But this isn't Peter's concern here at all, is it? The promise of Jesus is not to give us our youth back or give us the career we want or give us the stuff we think we need because he assumes that as Christians we won't be focused on that because we'll be focused on living godly lives. And when it comes to that, verse 3, well, Jesus, in his divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you see? 
in his divine power, he gives us everything we need to live godly lives, to live lives that are pleasing to him. So the, uh, the question then is, how is Jesus' divine power available to us so that we can live godly lives? Well, second half of verse 3, it's through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So this is kind of picking up this, this key theme of knowing God that he's, he was just kind of alluding to before. And of course, when, when we become Christians, we come to know the Lord Jesus, don't we, as our Saviour and, and our King. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Because it's as our intimate knowledge of Jesus grows and grows, as we know him more and more, that his divine power supplies everything we need to live godly lives. It's, it's as we grow in our knowledge of him, verse 3, that we become assured of the fact that he has called us to live lives that reflect his own glory and excellence. And, and that his divine power supplies everything we need in order to do that, do you see? And, and friend, I wonder if you have confidence of that this morning. That his divine power contains all the resources you need to live lives that reflect his own glory and excellence. Do you know that? Well, to know God is to know that this is what he has for us in Christ. And, and so to grasp hold of it. And, and not just to know that he gives us everything we need to live godly lives, but that he has also granted to us, verse 4, Precious and very great promises. So if verse 3 gives us assurance about the present, that it gives us everything we need to live a godly life, then verse 4 gives us assurance about the future, doesn't it? Because when, when Peter uses the, the word promises in, in this letter, he tends to be talking about the future, and, and specifically about the return of Christ and what will take place when he returns. So, so how amazing then that to know Christ and to grow in the knowledge of Christ is not only to know that we've been given all the resources we need for the present, but also everything we need for the future. It's to know that he's given us everything we need for godly living in the present and also through his word he's given us all the precious promises we need to know about the future that's coming to us, do you see? But, but that's not all, because then notice how at the end of verse 4, he kind of brings it all together to say that through them, through these uh, uh, precious and great promises, you may become partakers in the divine nature, which, uh, which doesn't mean uh, that we'll somehow become you know, part of God or something like that. But, but rather it means that in knowing Christ, we'll increasingly share in his nature as we become more like him. And, and all towards the day, actually when we will be, as Romans 8, 28, uh, 29 puts it, 
uh, we will be fully conformed to, to the image of his son. Such that we will have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Friends, those are quite dense verses, aren't they? Quite, quite complicated verses. I, I hope you could just get the gist of them at, at least. Because they are really quite wonderful, aren't they? And, and the message here is just look at Christ's provision for us through his divine power, the power that brought us to know him by faith. He has given us all the resources we need to live for him in the present and all the precious promises we need to sustain us and, until our future is realized. So, so let's not despair in the present because he's given us everything we need and let's not doubt the future because he is moving us towards the fulfillment of those precious and great promises of his word. Isn't that amazing? Isn't Christ's provision for us just incredible? Does, doesn't it warm our hearts? Doesn't it make us want to respond in praise and, and thanks? I, I pray it does. Because, friends, that shouldn't leave us cold, should it? But actually... It needs to do more than that, doesn't it? There, there is a greater response that we need to make to Christ's provision for us. And, and this is really, I think, the big point of the, the passage. So, so have, a, have a look at verses 5 to 9, where I think we see that the right response to Christ's provision for us is our effort for him. So look at verse 5, where, where he starts by saying, For this very reason, make every effort. In other words, in the light of everything you've seen that Christ has done for you, make every effort. Do you, do you see? And, and friends, in a, in, a world of, uh, in a world of sin, in a world where uh, temptations abound for, for the Christian in, in every area of life, it does take a lot of effort effort to live a godly life doesn't it you know um, it's not our world littered with people who have fallen away in their Christian lives because it was too tough because it required too much effort you, you probably know a few who, who when the pull of the world became too strong they gave up on, on that priority of living godly lives. They let other things take priority instead. You know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe hobbies or pastimes just gradually started to replace meeting with God's people. Maybe the TV choked out time that was spent in word and prayer. Maybe work just pulled them away from cultivating godly disciplines in their lives. That's why Peter says, make every effort. In other words, be determined to live as Christians. Seek spiritual maturity grow in your knowledge of christ strenuously persist and keep going in it make the effort or or we'll backslide which doesn't mean that we'll you know we'll slide headlong into huge sin or leave the church necessarily or, or anything like that it may just mean that our hearts will get cold towards god that, that we'll be no longer stirred by his provision for us and Peter says we need to make every effort to avoid this. 
And you might be thinking here, Steve, all this talk about my effort makes it sound like it's all up to me. But no, because verse 3 has told us that God's divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, in Christ, we've got every resource we need to live godly lives. And so verse 5 here is telling us to make every effort to use the resources that he has given us in Christ, you see? And, and so in, in verses 5 to 7, he, he gives a list, if you like, of, of, of the things that we should be uh, seeking to, uh, verse 5, add to our faith, which you, you might think is a strange expression, surely. Uh, central to the, the teaching of the Bible is that we're, we're saved by grace through faith alone. You know, we can't add anything to, to what Christ has already done, can we? Our good deeds add nothing to our salvation, right? Well, yes, <laughs> absolutely right. But, but Peter's point here is that having been saved, we are not passive in our spiritual growth, but active in it. And, and so we are to make every effort to grow in our faith by actively cultivating in our lives these virtues, these spiritual fruits that, that he then lists in verses 5 to 7, like, like virtue or, or goodness, like, like having a Christ-like nature. Cultivate that. Or knowledge, so, so growing in Christ-like wisdom and, and, and discernment. Seek that, pursue that. Or, or self-control, so, so possessing Christ-like discipline in our lives. Chase after that. Or steadfastness or perseverance, so going on with God and standing against temptation. Be active in that. Godliness, so, so living a, a Christ-like life, a, a life that honours God. Brotherly affection, showing the, the same kind of love to our, our Christian family that Christ shows towards us. And, and finally, love, you know, that, that word that sort of summarises all the others, that word which, which Jesus says encapsulates the whole law and, and reflects Christ's love for the world. Pursue those things. It's not as though you start at the beginning of the list and then you work your way through it towards the end. You know, let me get virtue cracked first and then we'll move on to the next one. Um, no, no that, that's not the idea. The idea is that we are seeking growth in, in all of these areas. Because, verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, in other words, if you're growing in them, then they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you, do you see the point here? Um, have, you, have you noticed how, how, how often it's the case that we can be driven as Christians by what we do for God? You know, in other words, we make our gifts or our abilities the main thing. You know, I, I've noticed over the years how, how sometimes Christians can drift from church to church trying to find an outlet for the gifts that they think God has given them and can then become increasingly dissatisfied when certain avenues that they might desire don't open up. And, and often what lies behind that dissatisfaction is that we, we tend to measure our Christian life by what we do you know, by the role that we have. But God doesn't measure us like that. 
He doesn't measure us according to whether we're a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a musician or whatever. No, to be fruitful, to be effective in the Christian life is about displaying the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, not the gifts of the Spirit in our lives. It's to be growing in maturity and being Christ-like in every area of our lives. Do you see? It's Christ's provision for us which then flows out into our effort for him. And it's, it's never the other way around. It's never our effort for him which results in Christ's provision for us. No, that's, that's just religion. That's salvation by works. No, it's Christ's provision for us which flows out into our effort for him. And that effort is not about role or gifts. It's about living Christ-like lives. It's about displaying spiritual fruit in response to his provision for us in the gospel. Do you see? So Christ's provision for us, our effort for him... And and then briefly in verses 10 and 11, the future that awaits. And and notice how Peter reminds us in, in verse 10 that as Christians we are both called and elected so so we're called God has called us by his spirit and we've responded to that call in in repentance and faith and we've been elected we saw that word in 1 Peter uh, as well didn't we in in his amazing grace he's he's chosen us for salvation so just uh, just take a look at, at this calling and this election in ourselves for a minute because um you know, just like, the, just like the proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? Um, so the proof that we've been called and elected to salvation so that our future is secure in Christ is that we are people who are growing in Christ-like living. Do you see? Growing in Christ-likeness is what gives us assurance that we really belong to Christ. As we strive for godliness, we know that the strength to keep striving for it comes only from his divine power. Which proves to us that he's called us and he's chosen us. Which means that we can be assured, verse 10, that we'll never fall. Although our relationship with God may may kind of ebb and flow will never fall out of his loving arms because he's called us and chosen us. And we'll also be assured, verse 11, that there will be richly provided for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In other words, there'll be a warm welcome home that's, that's waiting for us in Christ's eternal kingdom. Do you see the point here, friends? To, to, to be making the effort to live a godly life in, in the divine power which Christ provides and in response to Christ's provision for us in the gospel, it gives us assurance that our future is secure. So, so despite all, all Peter's talk about effort here, it turns out that the Christian life is all about Christ, isn't it? It's about what he's done in the past, what he's supplying for us now in the present, and what's awaiting us in the future. So let's live for him. Let's not be people, verse 9, who are so nearsighted and blind that we've forgotten 
all that he's done for us. And let's not risk falling away in our faith, but let's rejoice in his provision for us. And let's make every effort in the grace that he provides to grow in our knowledge of him and in godliness of living. And, and, and all the while, keeping our eyes fixed on that welcome home that is coming when we meet our Saviour face to face. Shall I pray for us? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that as your people uh, we have come to know Christ and and we're now to live for Christ uh, as we look forward to meeting Christ face to face. Um, so, So please would you help and encourage us by your divine power at work in us to to make every effort to live Christ-like lives as a response to all that you've done for us in him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.